Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Nina Wilner. At the start of the Cold War, Nina's mother Hannah escaped from East Germany at the age of 20, leaving her entire family and everything she had ever known. With a rich historical backdrop, 40 Autumns is the story of Hannah's escape and life outside of East Germany, her family's life under the 40-year regime, and Nina's own intelligence work in East Berlin in the late 1980s. 40 Autumns is currently available in hardcover, and a paperback edition will be available August 15th. So on the phone with us right now, we have Nina Wilner, author of 40 Autumns. And Nina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. All right, so Nina, to start off, um, can you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. Um, so 40 Autumns is a story about what happened to my family during the Cold War, from my mother's escape from communist East Germany to the family she left behind, her mother, father, eight siblings, who were essentially then trapped in a prison country. And then my going into East Germany as a young American intelligence officer leading intelligence operations on Soviet territory in East Germany. So uh, the book is really a three-tiered narrative. You have this family story set within the story of the East-West German story, and then that is set within the framework of the bigger picture Cold War story, where you had this sort of epic clash of ideologies, communism versus democracy that went head to head, you know, in the space race, the nuclear arms race, and uh, in proxy conflicts that raged around the world at the time with tensions escalating uh, at times to the brink of nuclear war. And within that history is my family forcibly separated for 40 years, never knowing if they'd ever see each other again. Mm -hmm. So what made you decide to write a book about all this? Well, uh, I, I think I can trace the very moment I decided to write the book. I was living in Prague, Czech Republic at the time, and I was having a conversation around the kitchen table with my Aunt Heidi and my cousin Cordula, both of whom I'd never met until the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. And we were all sharing our perspectives about what it was like during the Cold War on two opposite sides of the wall and how fortunate we are now to have each other's love and friendship and uh, at some point, it dawned on us that not only did our family really have an amazing story to tell, we, we really had a story that must be told, from my mother's escape to my grandfather and my aunt's defiance against the communist system to my uh, cousin Cordula becoming a member of the East German Olympic training team and then to my running intelligence operations for, for the army inside uh, communist East Germany. and. My, my mother came from a big family, so there are some interesting characters. For example, just after the wall was built, the Berlin Wall, uh, and right around the time President John F. Kennedy came to Berlin to give his Ich bin ein Berliner speech, my uncle was a border guard standing at, uh, standing watch at the Berlin Wall. So, um, you know, and there were a lot of pressures living under communism and under a secret police, the Stasi secret police, which I discuss in the book in detail. And I talk about, a lot about how the Stasi used fear and intimidation to control and manipulate the citizens of East Germany and how people had to deal with that every day of their lives. 
So hearing the stories of my family um, and how they dealt with all of that, I really grew to have an immense respect for what the family had gone through and how they had persevered. Uh, but most importantly, how they maintained their dignity and and how they kept the family at the center of their lives as, as their coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I read in the afterwards, your mother wrote a novel about her experiences too. She did. Now hers is a, is a novel, so mm-hmm. um, it really is focused on the three years uh, it, her from the time that um, she escaped to the three years following, uh, the time she spent in West Germany before she actually went to America. Um, so it's sort of those years that she she fled alone and really had very little support uh, because she actually arrived in West Germany as an illegal being underage. Uh, and so she wasn't able to get um, support officially uh, or legally. Uh, and so she was really a refugee young kid on her own. And, um, and, and so her novel is about the three years following her escape and how she struggled. But it's really... It's called Christine, and it's really done in novel form because she wanted mm-hmm. the flexibility to be able to change facts. So it's really it's really done in novel form um, about a young girl uh, who basically, you know, is based on her story. Mm. Well, speaking of facts, um, could you tell us a little bit about your research process? Um, so obviously, there are the two different aspects to it. There's uh, the personal research you had to do with your family, and then there's also the larger historical backdrop. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, as you can imagine, I did a lot of research, mm-hmm. and it shows. Uh, there's a long, yeah. <laughs> there's a long bibliography in the back of the book that traces my research. Um, I'd say some of my favorite experiences were working with people at various archives, like the Stasi secret police archive in Berlin. Uh, the people there were incredibly helpful, um, and even were able to uncover some photos taken by Stasi agents of me and my team conducting intelligence operations inside East Germany. Another great source, for example, was a friend of mine who later became a two-star general who also ran missions inside East Germany for the British military, so doing something very similar to what I was doing. But um, he was able to provide some great information and photos uh, that I used in the book. And, of course, I had many extensive conversations and interviews with a wide variety of sources to include, you know, most of the family members, but also with interesting people like Gunter Wetzel, who at the age of 24 built a homemade hot air balloon and sailed two families over the wall to freedom in West Germany in 1979. And I'm very proud to say that Gunter has uh, become a good friend. Uh, so I also went to all the places in the book to learn what I could. For example, I went back to my mother's village, mm-hmm. and in this tiny village, they they had maintained one entire building that housed a collection of historical Cold War artifacts. And so, for someone like me, that was a dream. In fact, they even had uh, a display of a classroom from the communist days. And my grandfather was a village teacher, and the desks and the chairs and even the textbooks in that display likely came from his school. That's fascinating. Also, um, during my visit to Schwanenberg, for example, I met a little old white-haired lady who, as it turned out, had my grandfather as a teacher, and she was able to share some firsthand stories about him and what he was like. Uh, so I learned a lot that way. But essentially, the research was critical to my book, and, and I also think it's important to say I found that not only did I need to, to, to learn and then tell the family story, but I also needed to 
fundamentally understand and ground you, the reader, in the context for the story. So I really did a lot of research to learn what the story was about East and West Germany uh, and, and the tensions there. And then also to understand the story, I really had to bring to you the bigger picture of the Cold War battle between the Soviet Union and America. So in the book, you get the story of that superpower battle for dominance um, and the Cold War on that level, the story of East-West Germany, and you follow all of that through this intimate family portrait. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's excellent. Um, so the book obviously deals with the Cold War, um, picks up literally right at the start of the end of World War II, um, and it's about them living in this regime in East Germany. Um, but can you tell us anything about Oma and Hannah's experiences growing up, raising a family under the Nazi regime? Yeah, sure. So as I, as I mentioned earlier, my grandfather was a teacher and headmaster of the village school, and he was also a World War I vet, so he was already in his 40s, and so he wasn't called up to serve until late in the war. My, bro my mother's brother was also a soldier who was called up to serve late in the war when Hitler called for all boys over the age of 15 to serve, and he was 17 at the time. So, um, by the way, I was able to do some research and found uh, out that my grandfather and my uncle were likely never in the Nazi party, so that, that was fortunate news. Um, it's always good to know. So as far as my mother, yes. Yeah, that was, that was really good to know. So, yeah, as far as my mother's recollections, she was a teenager at the time, and she remembers when there wasn't enough to eat because, especially toward the end, food was going to the front to feed the German soldiers. Uh, she lived in, in fear of Allied bombers that flew overhead en route to bomb the industrial cities, the bigger cities like Magdeburg. So toward the end of the war, the family really lived in the cellar for the last few months, hoping that they'd be protected if any bombs dropped. Um, but to specifically answer your question, living in a tiny village, my mother recalls that they lived pretty much as ordinary Germans during that time. Mm -hmm. Everyone um, basically knew to toe the line. There was a sense of fear in towing the line under the Nazis. Um, and she said that even though, you know, there was this bombastic rhetoric and anti-Semitic laws, they really didn't know any Jews. There certainly weren't any uh, who lived in the village. But she remembers things like suddenly the Jewish vendor who used to go from village to village selling cheese and the mm -hmm. Roma merchants stopped coming. And as we now know, it's because they were being sent to concentration camps. So, um, but my, by the way, my father was also German. But he was Jewish, and so his whole family was caught up in the Holocaust. And so at the time my mother was a teenager living in the village of Schwanenberg, my father was also a teenager whose family had been murdered in the Holocaust. So he was, he was an 18-year-old kid orphaned by 1944 um, and was Nazi slave labor just trying to stay alive in Auschwitz and Buchenwald concentration camps. Um, and incidentally, the... Buchenwald subcamp that my father was in was located just like 20 miles away from my mother's village of Schwanenberg. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but in terms of how my grandmother felt about Hitler, um, my mother told me that my grandmother followed the laws and rules of the times, of course, but at the end of the war after Hitler was defeated, my mother walked into the house one day and found that her mother, my grandmother, had removed Hitler's portrait off the wall 
which every house had to have Hitler's portrait prominently displayed. She removed it, had smashed it, and was burning it in the fireplace. Hmm. Um, other than that, uh, the only other thing I can tell you is I, I know through my grandfather's words in his diary, which I had access to, uh, that though he had to adapt to Nazism privately, he called Hitler, uh, and this is a quote, a madman who despised human beings. Which, of course, had that comment gotten out at the time, he could have been punished, you know, gravely for even sent to a concentration camp mm -hmm. for making a comment like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then, um, so then we move into the regime in East Germany um, throughout those forty years, um, and during that history, the regime. Um, through communism is trying to make life better for its citizens. It's, it ultimately wants its citizens to um, enjoy this regime, um, you know, trying to get them adequate food, access to goods, but then all of their plans sort of backfire. Things don't work out the way they intended to, and it's only when, um, for example, they give the citizens freedom to um, build their own farms that, you know, they do wind up getting that good morale that winds up providing a lot of food. Do you think all these issues they had in providing for their citizens were because of the regime itself, or do you think there's an inherent flaw in communism? Well, that's a great question. So let me start by saying, so there were some positives and some achievements under the communists, mm -hmm. like universal daycare, health care, education, and, and you know, for those who towed the party line. But in the end, East Germany was an authoritarian dictatorship run by a handful of communist zealots, and the only way they could control society was through a brutal secret police. So in the end, as we've seen through history, authoritarianism never works because the tyranny of a few can never suppress the longing for freedom of an entire people. So, you know, there's really this, this need, this human nature to be free, to have a voice, to speak up about what kind of life you want to live, freedom to move and travel, freedom to express yourself. Uh, freedom to practice religion, which was uh, really stunted under communism as well. And, you know, for people to live to their own God-given potential. And history shows that trying to suppress this, this human desire for freedom, just never works. Um, you know, uh, and, and these, are, these are precious freedoms that we need to value and, and, and cherish uh, and must be protected. So, yeah, in the end, I mean, it just, it has never... So it has never worked because uh, suppressing those human freedoms just um, just will not allow it to work. Mm. So I want to go back to earlier um, how you mentioned that you uh, worked in U.S. intelligence in East Germany during the end of the Cold War. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you got to that position? Did your family's East German roots affect that career choice in any way? Um, well, that's really hard for me to say. I, I really don't know. Um, mm. uh, what I do know is that I, I was, you know, in ROTC in college, and um, towards graduation, you get to request your career field, and based on your standing or order of merit, you know, you uh, if you do well, you have a better chance to get your selection. And luckily, I got my my first choice of military intelligence. But I I really don't know what played into it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's all I can tell you. I really don't know. So when you went over there, um, what were some of the things you were looking for when you would go across the Berlin Wall to East Germany? Well, 
Okay, so uh, because we were on the front line mm -hmm. um, where East met West, so we're on the front line where the massive Red Army in East Germany and NATO just across the border in West Germany, we were given targeting packages and tasked by Washington uh, with what to look at. So, uh, and this was this included a wide range of things depending on what was going on at the time. Um, you know, but often it was weapons and equipment, for example, uh, like the newly fielded Soviet T-80 tank, which was at the time a state-of-the-art tank equipped with explosive reactive armor, which, uh, you know, so those kinds of things. New weapons systems, um, new equipment, um, numbers of equipment, unit movements that could indicate maybe like a buildup before an attack uh, across the border from east to west. So, and, and the point is that we were we were right on the front lines getting a good unique close-up look at what the Soviets and East Germans were up to. So really, um, because we had this unique opportunity, we, we were able, you know, we gathered any information we could that, that we felt would be of interest to Washington, and certainly, uh, like I said, whatever Washington targeted us to get. Um, and, and I detail some of this in the book. Uh, sometimes these missions were dangerous. We were often followed, but if we could break free from our surveillance, which could be either Soviet or East German, we would try to work our way into positions where we could then collect the information. Um, and the dangers, uh, you know, the dangers included intentional vehicle rammings, detentions where we'd be surrounded by Soviet soldiers threatening us, sometimes with rifles pointed at us. I chronicle these operations in the book in, in a lot more detail, mm -hmm. the risks and threats to our teams uh, to gather the information. And, you know, I also tell the story of a colleague who was killed doing, doing this work in East Germany. I write about my own sometimes harrowing experiences to include one incident where my team was surrounded, my team of two, the two of us, were surrounded by armed Soviet soldiers, and one of them held a loaded gun to my head. Mm. So. I'd just like to add that, you know, all this information that I do talk about in the book, has, uh, I could only talk about information that's been declassified, and, um, and all, everything I talk about in the book has, was fully vetted before the publication of the book. So. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously, not only were you alive for the Cold War, you were right there in the heart of it, um, but we're at a point now where most students today weren't alive during the Cold War, have no memory of it whatsoever. They only know of it as something vague that they study in history class. Um, why do you think it's important for students to really understand the Cold War? So I, I really think this is an important question. It's probably the mm. most important question because we're faced today with many important challenges and we're also seeing the reemergence of authoritarianism and extremism in the world today. So I think the Cold War taught us a lot of lessons. Mm -hmm. First of all, we have, we have to remember that this is recent history, and if you didn't live during the Cold War, you were still likely impacted by it somehow. Certainly your parents lived during that time, or maybe you were related to someone like a refugee from Cuba or Eastern Europe. Maybe someone in your family fought during the Viet Vietnam War or the Korean War. So the Cold War likely had an impact on every American's life. And we should also understand the leading role that the U.S. played in the Cold War. The U.S. stands for freedom and liberty 
and during the Cold War was really this beacon of liberty and hope for millions of people throughout the world, and in particular for people that were walled off or sealed behind the Iron Curtain. And I, and I think this is something that we should be proud of. Uh, it came at a cost, however, because, you know, it, it, but it was, a, it was a result, the result of a tremendous leadership on, on the part of both political parties in the U.S., because no matter what the differences were at the time or the differences are, they were united in their determination to stand up to authoritarianism. And I, you know, I know that this is who we still are. The U.S. has to continue to strive to set that example for mm -hmm. the world for liberty, justice, rule of law, and, and doing what's right in standing up to authoritarianism and extremism. Absolutely. Um, Sunina, we have one more question for you. Uh, so this is a question that we ask all of our guests. Since this podcast is primarily for teachers, educators, their students, who was your favorite teacher? Wow, what a great question. <laughs> my favorite teacher. I think my favorite teacher um, was a teacher I had in seventh and eighth grade, mm. who really, much like, um, actually much like I understand my grandfather was back in East Germany, was someone who went, always went uh, above and beyond and went outside the classroom to kind of, you know, uh, Taught, taught very well in the classroom, very interactive, proactive teacher, but often took us out of the classroom to teach, um, to teach a lot more uh, than, than just textbook stuff. So for me, that was, that was a whole other way of looking at education. Um, very, very much appreciated. That's great. Well, Nina, thank you so much. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. All right. Have a good one. Take care. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.